Chapter Two of Workers Together. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Workers Together or an Endless Chain by Pansy. Chapter Two: The Curtis Girl. At the corner of Parsons Street, Doctor Everett halted and looked at his watch and calculated the probable distance between his office and the place that he would like to reach. He decided in favor of the errand and walked rapidly down Parsons Street to Drew, and halted before the Arbor Saloon. Pushing open the door, he stepped inside, an apparition in that place. The loungers stared. "'Good morning,' the newcomer said courteously to a showily dressed young man behind the bar. "'I wonder if you could give me the possible whereabouts of my friend Mr. Barrows this morning. I have a matter of business with him, and I am trying to save time in finding him.' Barrows? repeated the young man in astonishment. Why, you mean Dr. L. Barrows, I suppose? He is at number 200 Clark Place. Oh, no, I mean Mr. Austin Barrows. I had reason to think that he might have an appointment here, or that you could direct me where to find him. Austin Barrows, the young fellow, do you mean? Well, I don't know exactly where he is this morning. We expect him here about eleven o'clock, but he hasn't got around yet. He may be at his boarding-house. Do you know where that is? Oh, yes, thank you. He is one of my young men, you know. My name is Everett. Good morning. And the caller dropped a card on the counter and hastened away. Two young men came and peered over the shoulder of the clerk as he read the address. Stuart Everett, M.D., number 16 Clark Place. Office hours, 7 to 9 a.m., 5 to 7 p.m. Over. Obeying the hint, they turned the card and read, Stuart Everett, M.D., Superintendent of Packard Place Sunday School, services at Packard Place Church every Sabbath morning and evening, Sabbath school at 2 o'clock p.m., Sabbath school prayer meetings on Saturday evenings at 8 o'clock. The Dickens, said one of the young men. You don't say, added the other. New style, said the clerk at the bar. He's the new doctor who is making a sensation because he cured old Mr. Barnes after Dr. Barrows said he couldn't be cured. Well, he'll win. He has a kind of taking way. This is a neat card, but I wonder what the mischief he wants of Austin Barrows. Blessed if I knew before that he was anybody's young man. Though I guess he does go around to Packard Place Church pretty often. It pleases his mother, he says. This sentence ended in a slight sigh, a vague passing notion that it might not be an unpleasant thing to be one of Dr. Everett's young men, if the term did not involve too much self-sacrifice, lingered in his mind. He was showily dressed and wore much false jewelry, and yet there was that in him which was worth saving. And he turned with a slight disrelish to the counter to obey the call for a glass of beer. Dr. Everett's energies were next bent on finding young Austin Barrows and saving him before he fell into Satan's trap at ten o'clock. He went swiftly towards a car that would carry him soonest to the part of the town where the young man boarded, and in his haste came plump upon the very person, moving along sullenly, his eyes on the ground, his hands in his pockets, and a look of general discouragement about him. "'Why, how do you do?' was Dr. Everett's greeting. This is very fortunate. I was about to take a trip in search of you. I want to see you on particular business. 
You know me, of course. Dr. Everett, your superintendent. Whereupon Dr. Everett's hand was held out to grasp cordially the sullen young man's, and shake into it a sense of the importance and brightness of the new relation established between them. Up to this point Austin Barrows had never entertained an idea that the fact of there being a new superintendent in the Packard Place Sunday School could have anything special to do with him. I hear that you are out of employment, continued the doctor. I have in mind a situation that might suit you. I shall have to see one or two gentlemen first, but I was anxious that you made no other engagement until you saw me. I think I can secure this for you. Mrs. Saunders gives you a good recommendation. Will you wait until five o'clock this evening before you decide anything? And will you call at my office at four? Yes, sir said Austin Barrows to both questions, speaking without a moment's hesitation, and letting the sullen look on his face break into a smile. He didn't want to sell liquor in the Arbor Saloon if he could help it. Dr. Everett now made rapid strides towards his office. He was a few minutes late, but he told himself that he could well afford to be, for he believed he had set in motion a train of events that would help to teach next Sabbath's lesson to some of his young people. Before he started out on his round of professional calls, he wrote and dispatched the following note. Dear Farnsworth, I think I have found a young man who you will be willing to try at the store. At least I want you to try him. And if I am not mistaken, so does the master. Please take no further steps towards supplying your vacancy until you hear from me again. Yours, Everett. Austin Barrows had also an errand. He put his head in at the door of the Arbor Saloon and made this unceremonious statement. I can't give you a positive answer until five o'clock. Then he shut the door again quickly and moved on. The proprietor looked his annoyance. It was part of Satan's plan to get this particular young man, with his genial face and cheery ways, into the Arbor Saloon. If somebody was at work outwitting them, there would be grumbling. Young Barrows must have had a streak of luck, remarked one employee to another. His face has lost its glumness. He looks as though he might have had a legacy left him. However, he hadn't, you know. He had only shaken hands with his new superintendent. By two o'clock on that same day, Miss Mason was in her room, preparing for an afternoon excursion. She was in a somewhat nervous state of mind. Her eight o'clock engagement still caused her trouble. Vigorous efforts on her part, so far as the male members of her family were concerned, had signally failed in securing a complete list of the residences of her pupils. Three of the girls she knew where to find at least pretty nearly. Her father had helped her to the probable address of another, and her brother Dick knew that Fanny Tarrant lived on Arsenal Street but neither father nor brother knew anything about the girl with the queer bonnet, or the one who sometimes came with the Curtis girl. Now this state of things was embarrassing. How was she to look up a scholar whose principal clue was a queer bonnet? She could see no way but to call on the Curtis girl and enlist her help. Will it be credited that this Sabbath school teacher was almost as nervous over a prospective call on one of her scholars as she would have been over an appointment to preach? What was she to say to the Curtis girl when she found her? To come in contact with a young person of her stamp, 
when it would not be the proper thing to ask, what is the subject of this lesson, how far is Bethany from Jerusalem, what event is mentioned that took place in Bethany, and so on down the lesson leaf list of questions, was to plunge one's self at once into an embarrassing position. Miss Mason, as she nervously twitched her hat into position, and opened one drawer and then another in search of gloves, had an uncomfortable consciousness that she was guilty of wishing that Dr. Everett were superintendent of a school in Jericho instead of Packard Place. If he were going to continue in this manner, tormenting them with all sorts of new notions about names and residences and practical deductions, what an uncomfortable person he would be. Away at the other end of the earth, she muttered, as having at last reached the front door, she looked again at the name of the street which her father had given her as the abiding place of the Curtis family. I never was on that street in my life. I don't believe I know how to get to it, and I don't see what I am going for anyway. I'm not obliged to be at the service of that doctor. I believe I will write him a note and resign my class." but even while she questioned, she signaled a passing car and went on her way. It required some changes of lines and a good deal of questioning interspersed with mental grumblings. Between times, the perplexed teacher tried to decide what she should say, suppose she did happen to find the house. What excuse could she make for calling? Imagine the pity of it, that there should be in existence a Sabbath school teacher who thought she needed an excuse for calling on one of her scholars. But Miss Mason was sincere. It was all new ground, and she did not know how to proceed. She wondered whether it would do to ring at the door, provided there was a doorbell to ring, and plunge at once into the subject, ask for the name of the girl with the queer bonnet, and where she was to be found. Also, who was that girl who came once in a while from somewhere, and seemed to have no distinctive mark? What would the Curtis girl think of that? By the way, what was that Curtis girl's name? She did wish she could recall it. She had heard it once, she felt sure. Was it Sarah, or Hattie, or what? It would be very awkward to have to ask her point blank. Yet, on the other hand, it would certainly be awkward to have Dr. Everett ask her, and feel herself unable to answer. He would ask, of course, that and every other question which occurred to him. Hadn't he asked her as many as a dozen that morning? Puzzling over questions like these, she changed cars once more, and behold, directly opposite to her, sat the girl with the queer bonnet. Queer it certainly was, not merely the queerness of bad taste in selection, but that worst form of queerness, an attempt at being stylish, which, in this case, resulted only in a profusion of bright cheap flowers mingled with yards of bright ribbon of contrasting hue, so arranged that the whole effect was exasperating to refined taste. There were more serious defects about the girl than an ill-chosen bonnet. She was a loud-voiced girl who talked much and laughed much, and was altogether so very familiar with the young man in the gay necktie who stood before her holding on by the strap, that Miss Mason shuddered as she listened. How could she address this ill-mannered creature and learn her name? By what process could she learn it if she made the attempt? Could she be expected to lean forward in the street car and say, What is your name? The girl had recognized her by a careless nod, 
but seemed by her manner to expect no other attention. Presently he of the gay necktie left the car, so indeed at the next crossing did several others, leaving Miss Mason and her scholar sole occupants. Clearly this was an opportunity, yet so unaccustomed was Miss Mason to making use of such opportunities that her face was flushed and her manner flurried. "'Do you live on this street?' she asked, making a bold attempt at conversation. "'Oh, dear, no,' said the loud-voiced girl. "'I live at the other end of creation, more than a mile from here.' "'You have a long distance, then, to come to Sabbath school. Is that the reason why you were not there last Sabbath?' "'No,' said the girl, laughing. "'It was because I got up too late. I was out most all night on Saturday, and slept most all day on Sunday to make up for it. I don't get to Sunday school very often. There is always something to hinder.' Miss Mason considered for a moment what she ought to say to that, and then concluded that it needed no reply. The momentous question was, how should she discover the girl's name? It did seem too bad to ask her outright. At last her face brightened. She had hit upon an expedient. I don't believe I have your name exactly correct in my roll book. Suppose you write it out for me on this card, together with your street and number. It was a miserable sort of subterfuge, such as no thoroughly conscientious heart would have been guilty of, this pretending that she had the name in some form, when in reality there had been no attempt to write it. Miss Mason blushed while she said the words, but comforted her conscience with the thought that it really was the truth after all, since, of course, if she hadn't the name at all, it could not be said to be correct. Still, for all that, she was ashamed of it. As a rule, she was careful of the truth, so far, at least, as her conscience was enlightened. As for the girl, she took the card hesitatingly, with an embarrassed laugh and heightened color. I don't know about putting my name on a card. It most seems like signing a pledge. Nevertheless, she wrote her name in a firm, bold hand. Hester J. Mason, number 92, South Worth Street. Then as she returned the card, her cheeks still glowing, she could not help feeling that she belonged to the Packard Place Sabbath School. She had never realized it before. It gave Miss Mason a peculiar sensation to discover that the girl in the queer bonnet was her namesake. The only reply that she made was in reference to the words about signing a pledge. "'Let us call it a pledge,' she said pleasantly that you will not stay up too late on Saturday nights for the next day's school, but will be there as often as you possibly can. Just then the conductor called the name of the street where she was to stop, and she left the car in haste, a good deal confused over her first attempt at being personal. Was that what Dr. Everett meant by making the lessons practical? But then, this wasn't a Sabbath school lesson. How came she to say such a thing? She remembered wondering where the girl spent her Saturday night, and fearing that she did not choose a very wise place. And then had come a wish that she would come to Sabbath school regularly, if she was coming at all. The next thing she knew, Dr. Everett would be asking whether they came regularly, and why they didn't. She had walked some distance before she remembered that she might have asked Hester Mason what the Curtis girl's first name was, and who that girl was who sometimes came with her. She stopped and looked back, chagrined at her folly. 
but the streetcar was already lost to view. There was nothing for it but to make her proposed call. The next point of interest was to find which was the Curtis house. This, too, she might have learned from Hester Mason, if she had not been so excited and embarrassed over she knew not what. How perfectly awkward to have to ring doorbells indefinitely and inquire for Jonas Curtis, and learn whether, when found, he had a daughter in the Packard Place Sabbath school. For she was by no means certain that the Jonas Curtis of whom her father had knowledge was the father of her pupil. Of one duty, however, she was to be relieved. It soon transpired that she was in a region where there were no doorbells to ring. Force of knuckle was the only power that could be exercised here. She timidly tried it at a door that might or might not be the one. Of course it seemed to her that she knocked very loud indeed, and, of course, she did not knock loud enough to be heard two feet away. After what seemed long waiting, she tried again. This time there was a response. The narrow door swung open, and, behold, the Curtis girl herself appeared to view. She gave Miss Mason no time for embarrassment or for questions. She had swollen eyes and quivering lips, and she said eagerly, Oh, Miss Mason! and burst into tears. What could be the matter with the Curtis girl? End of chapter 2 Recording by Tricia G.